A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens Read by Tony Turner Marley's Ghost Marley was dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. Oh! But he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him, no wind that blew was bitterer than he, no falling snow was more intent upon its purpose, no pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was a clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. To edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones call nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting-house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy with all, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond, 
a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal-box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter, and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. "'A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you!' cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. "'Bah!' said Scrooge. "'Humbug!' He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that it was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, and his breath smoked again. "'Christmas a humbug, uncle,' said Scrooge's nephew. "'You don't mean that, I'm sure.' "'I do,' said Scrooge. "'Merry Christmas! What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough!' "'Come, then,' returned the nephew gaily. "'What right have you to be dismal? "'What reason have you to be morose? "'You're rich enough.' Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, "'Bah!' again, and followed it up with "'Humbug!' "'Don't be cross, uncle,' said the nephew. "'What else can I be?' returned the uncle. "'When I live in such a world of fools as this!' Merry Christmas? Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money, a time for finding yourself a year older, but not an hour richer, a time for balancing your books and having every item in him through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, Every idiot who goes about with many Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated Scrooge's nephew, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much "'Good may it do you. Much good has it ever done you.' "'There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not, not profited, I, I dare say,' returned the nephew. "'Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time, when it has come round, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time.' A kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year, when men and women seem by one content to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow-passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, Though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good, and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded, 
becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last trail of spark for ever. "'Let me hear another sound from you,' said Scrooge, "'and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. "'You're quite a powerful speaker, sir,' he added, turning to his nephew. "'I wonder you don't go into Parliament.' "'Oh, don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us to-morrow.' "'Why did you get married?' said Scrooge. "'Because I fell in love.' "'Because you fell in love,' <laughs> growled Scrooge, as if that were the only one thing in the world more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. "'Good afternoon.' "'Nay, Uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now?' "'Good afternoon,' said Scrooge. "'I want nothing from you. I ask nothing from you. Why cannot we be friends?' "'Good afternoon,' said Scrooge. "'I'm sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. "'We've never had any quarrel to which I have been a party, "'but I've made the trial in homage to Christmas, "'and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. "'So, a merry Christmas, Uncle.' "'Good afternoon,' said Scrooge. "'and a happy new year. "'Good afternoon!' "'His nephew left the room without an angry word notwithstanding. "'He stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, "'who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. "'There's another fellow,' muttered Scrooge, who overheard him. "'My clerk!' with fifteen shillings a week, and a wife and a family, talking about a merry Christmas, and I'll retire to Bedlam. This lunatic, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands, and bowed to him. "'Scrooge <laughs> and Marley's, I believe,' <laughs> said one of the gentlemen, referring to his list. Uh, "'Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley?' "'Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years,' Scrooge replied. "'He died seven years ago this very night.' "'We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner,' <laughs> said the gentleman, presenting his credentials. It certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits. At the ominous word liberality, Scrooge frowned, and shook his head, and handed the credentials back.' "'At this uh, festive time of the year, Mr. Scrooge,' said the gentleman, taking up a pen, "'it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, <laughs> who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons?' asked Scrooge. "'Oh, <laughs> plenty of prisons,' said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. "'And the Union workhouses?' demanded Scrooge. "'Are they still in operation?' "'They still are,' returned the gentleman. "'I wish I could say they were not.' 
Oh, I, I was afraid, from what you said at first, that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. <laughs> Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, returned the gentleman, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We chose this time because it is a time, of all others, when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. <laughs> what shall I put you down for? Nothing, Scrooge replied. Oh, <laughs> you wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it, and decrease the surplus population. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentlemen withdrew. Scrooge returned his labours with an improved opinion of himself, and in a more facetious temper than was usual with them. At length the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. With an ill-will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool, and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed the candle out and put on his hat. "'You want all day to-morrow, I suppose?' said Scrooge. Oh, if quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, said Scrooge, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. The clerk smiled faintly. And yet, said Scrooge, you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. The clerk observed that it was only once a year. "'A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every twenty-fifth of December,' said Scrooge, buttoning his greatcoat to the chin. "'But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning.' The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with a growl. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no greatcoat, went down a slide on Cornhill at the end of a lane of boys twenty times in honour of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt to play at Blind Man's Buff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms, in a lowering pile of building up a yard, where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying that it must have run there when it was a young house, playing at hide-and-seek with other houses, and forgotten the way out again. It was old enough now, and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge the other rooms being all let out as offices. 
The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with his hands. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place, also that Scrooge had a little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London, even including, which is a bold word, the corporation, alderman, and livery. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years' dead partner that afternoon, and then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face. It was not in impenetrable shadow, as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge, as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred, as if by breath or hot air, and, though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, and its livid colour, made it horrible. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again, to say that he was not startled, or that his blood was not conscious of a terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy, would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause with a moment's irresolution before he shut the door, and he did look cautiously behind it first, as if he half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall, but there was nothing on the back of the door except the screws and nuts that held the knocker in. So he said, Pooh! Pooh! and closed it with a bang. Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for that. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do that. Sitting-room, bedroom, lumber-room, all as they should be, nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa, a small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and the little saucepan of gruel. Scrooge had a cold in his head, upon the hob. Nobody under the bed, nobody in the closet, nobody in his dressing-gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in. Double-locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing-gown and slippers, and his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, 
It was with great astonishment, and with a strange, inexplicable dread, that as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound, but soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. This might have lasted a half a minute or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun, together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise, deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still, said Scrooge. I won't believe it. His colour changed, though, when, without a pause, it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Upon its coming in, the dying flame leapt up, as though it cried, I know him, Marley's ghost, and fell again. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. No, nor did he believe it even now. Though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. "'How now?' said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever. "'What do you want with me?' Much. Marley's voice. No doubt about it. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Uh, who were you, then? said Scrooge, raising his voice. In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I, I don't. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. At this the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. "'Mercy!' he said. 
dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, replied the ghost, do you believe in me or not? I do, said Scrooge, I, I must. But why do spirits walk the earth, and why do they come to me? It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men, and travel far and wide, and if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth, and turned to happiness. Again the spectre raised a cry, and shook its chain, and wrung its shadowy hands. "'You are fettered,' said Scrooge, trembling. "'Tell me why.' "'I wear the chain I forged in life,' replied the ghost. "'I made it link by link, and yard by yard. "'I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. "'Is its pattern strange to you?' "'Scrooge trembled more and more.' "'Or would you know,' pursued the ghost, "'the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? "'It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. "'You have laboured on it since.' "'Jacob,' he said imploringly, "'old Jacob Marley, tell me more. "'Speak comfort to me, Jacob.' "'I have none to give.' the ghost replied. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge. Mark me, in life my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. "'Business!' cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. "'Mankind was my business. "'The common welfare was my business. "'Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. "'The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water "'in the comprehensive ocean of my business. "'Hear me. "'My time is nearly gone.' "'I will,' said Scrooge, "'but don't be hard upon me. "'Don't be flowery, Jacob, pray.' "'I am here to-night to warn you "'that you have yet a chance and hope "'of escaping my fate, "'a chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. "'You were always a good friend to me,' said Scrooge. "'You will be haunted,' resumed the ghost, "'by three spirits.' Expect the first to-morrow, when the bell tolls one. Yeah. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? hinted Scrooge. Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. The third upon the next night, when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that... For your own sake you remember what has passed between us. 
The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. The spectre floated out upon the bleak, dark air. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double-locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say humbug, but stopped at the first syllable, and being from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, went straight to bed, without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant.' 